I just want to say that um, it is very encouraging to see you here tonight. Um, in past years, whenever we would do this t preaching series, people would come out strong at first, and then by the time the preaching series was over, we'd have maybe a handful of, to 10 people here, uh, which can be discouraging because it takes hours for any preacher to preach a good sermon, to prepare for it. And when, uh, and when people aren't there to hear it, it can be deflating. So it's been very encouraging to see your steadfastness and your consistency this summer. So I thank God for you. I also, before I forget, I just want to um, ask you guys, um, especially you young men uh, or any able-bodied person after this service to go help in the fellowship hall to set up for Ms. Murtis's, uh service or the, or the, the post uh, service in there. So we got some tables to set up and some things to get out of the shed. All right, so let me pray and ask God to help us. Lord, thank you so much for the series. It has certainly been heartening, encouraging to hear these passages that have been helpful to these men. We ask for your help again, O oh God, as we hear from your word that you by your spirit would move in us, transform us into the likeness of your son. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I stopped listening to the briefing by Dr. Moeller a while ago. And I'm not saying that you should do the same thing. I have no beef with Dr. Moeller. It's just that every episode is basically about just how terrible the state of the world is. And it was becoming a little too heavy for a morning commute. But the thing is, I don't really need to listen to his podcast to know that he's absolutely right. The world is terrible, and we shouldn't be shocked by that. But just taking a look at some of the recent episodes and their details, here are just a few of some of the issues that Dr. Moeller has addressed on his podcast. Reports show the Biden administration pressured social media messaging during the pandemic big time. Pro-abortion movement gains huge momentum as Ohio voters overwhelmingly reject constitutional proposal. The temptation to abandon historic Christian doctrine on gender and sexuality in the name of inclusivity and tolerance. So, the government continues to try to influence what we think and what we believe. The populace becomes less and less concerned about human life. And the church continues to be tempted to cave to the sexual revolution. But what's a Christian to do? What are you supposed to do about all of this? What am I supposed to do about all of this? I've selected this passage for this series about, about passages that have helped us the most because it has been massively helpful to me when it comes to this tension. It tells us exactly what we should do when we're living in an anti-God world. It tells us exactly what to do. It tells us how to respond. It tells us how to interact with the lies that we will encounter and all the ungodliness we will observe. And prayerfully tonight, we'll walk away equipped and emboldened to do what we need to do, comforted by the reality that God will do what he will do. So before we look at the solution, let's first see the problem. The problem. 
We're going to see this in chapter 3, verses 1 through 13 of 2 Timothy. But first, the letter of 2 Timothy was, was written by the Apostle Paul to his young protege. And in the first couple of chapters, Paul urges Timothy to be strong in the grace of God that is in Christ Jesus. He encourages him to pass on the teachings of the gospel to faithful and reliable teachers who will then teach others. So what Paul has taught Timothy, Timothy is to teach faithful men, and those faithful men ought to teach others as well. Paul further exhorts Timothy to be a good soldier of Christ, not distracted by worldly affairs, but focused on pleasing his Lord and Master. He also wants Timothy to be a good teacher, not getting involved in useless arguments, but handling the word of God correctly. Let's read verses 1 through 13 again of chapter 3, and then we'll look at it more closely. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So in verse 1, Paul writes, but understand this. In the previous verses, Paul has just encouraged Timothy by saying that if Timothy corrects his opponents with gentleness, God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. They might come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. But at the same time, Paul wants to give Timothy realistic expectations. And this, by the way, is one of the hallmarks of amillennialism, right? We're okay saying that things may get better, but they may not. We can be optimistic. We can be hopeful. But we can also be sober-minded and realistic. You hear us pray every Sunday that God would cause revival in our nation, fully believing that he may do just that, but also not being devastated if he doesn't. God can make massive changes, but understand this, verse 1, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. When are the last days? It's talking about the period we're in right now. The period between Christ's ministry, his resurrection, to his return. Now how do we know that this is talking about right now and not talking about some period in the future? 
Well, here are a few passages. Hebrews 1, 1 through 2 says this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom we appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He has spoken to us by his Son in these last days. In Acts 2, verses 16 through 17, Peter says that Joel's prophecy was being fulfilled at Pentecost. And he quotes Joel as referring to that time as the last days. And finally, John writes in 1 John 2.18, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard, that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So, just as Paul, Peter, and John were living in the last days, so are we <coughs> living in the last day last days. And in the last days, verse 1 says, there will come times of difficulty. What kind of difficulty is Paul talking about? It's the kind of difficulty that comes from the persecution of godly people in a godless world. Paul's about to describe what the world would be like. In verse 2, Paul begins, for people will be lovers of self. People are going to be arrogant. They're going to be narcissistic. They're going to be selfish. They're going to be all about themselves. Just look at social media. Look at social media culture. People are obsessed with selfies, likes, followers. People make videos about the various outfits they wore that week. Why? But people watch them. People watch these videos. They seek validation, attention, and admiration from others. And they're doing that based on trends, meaning that many people are seeking validation, attention, and admiration from others. The focus on the self is pretty much on the nose when it comes to terms that are frequently used today. Self-care, self-esteem, self-help, self-expression, self-employed. I mean, that's a dream, right? Be your own boss. Don't answer to anyone but yourself. People love themselves. That's why there's no commandment to love yourself. There's just a commandment that you would love others in the same way that you love yourself. Even those who supposedly hate themselves are obsessed with themselves to the point of depression. You would think that if you really hated yourself, you would just be focused on everybody else. But that's not what happens. People will be lovers of self. They'll also be, verse 2, lovers of money. They're going to be greedy, covetous, and idolatrous when it comes to money. Money will be their God. We know that it's not wrong to have money. It's not wrong to use money. But the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Jesus says you cannot serve God and money at the same time. Yet do we not see people in this world obsessed with money? Whether it's the ultra-rich who continue accumulating wealth for themselves at whatever cost to their morality, or the socialist who wants to eat the rich. They're going to be lovers of money. They'll also be proud, verse 2 says. Proud. 
They're going to have a high opinion of themselves and they're going to be self-important. They're going to be, verse 2 says, arrogant. The words are closely related, proud and arrogant, but maybe we can distinguish them from internal to external, right? A proud person internally thinks very highly of himself and an arrogant person treats people accordingly. Sorry about that, I turned off my alarm. Arrogant people are based on their pride treating people arrogantly. They'll also be verse two, abusive, abusive. That particular word speaks more about verbal abuse, but certainly verbal abuse and physical abuse are coming from the same place. The next one's interesting. Disobedient to their parents, verse two. I say it's interesting because we may have a tendency to not think that this deserves to be lumped in with these other sins in this list. Disobedient to parents. I mean, we we may have gotten so used to seeing children disobedient to their parents that we no longer realize that honoring your father and mother is one of the very Ten Commandments. God has placed parents as natural authorities over their children. Therefore, disobedience to parents is rebellion toward God. Yes, disobedience to parents belongs on this list of wickedness. Verse 2 goes on to say ungrateful. That's another one that we might not think belongs on this list. Ungrateful, but it absolutely belongs on this list. Being ungrateful is wicked evil. It also is the root of all kinds of evil, right? Who was ungrateful but Cain, who killed Abel? Or the Israelites who grumbled in the, in the wilderness? Or the nine out of ten lepers whom Jesus healed? Or Judas Iscariot? Being ungrateful is wicked. Unholy, verse 2, is also in this list. Unholy. This word is talking about having no regard for that which is sacred. Being irreligious. Being irreverent. Verse 3 continues, heartless. This is the opposite of being compassionate and loving. And we see a lot of heartlessness out in the world. Verse 3 also says unappeasable. Some people are just never satisfied. They're stubborn. They're unreasonable. They're demanding. That's evil. Slanderous, verse 3, is the next one. Slanderous is talking about lying or making false accusations about people. And doesn't that feel familiar in the world that we live in today? Then we see in verse 3, without self-control. A person without self-control is constantly just going to give in to the desires of the flesh. And related to that is the next word, verse 3, brutal. A brutal person lacks self-control when it comes to their anger and their violence, which leads to brutality. Then Paul adds at the end of verse 3, not loving good. People will not love what is good and right. They'll love what is evil. They'll shout their abortion. They'll wear their sexuality with pride. Next, he lists in verse 4, treacherous. Treacherous. These are people who are not loyal or trustworthy. They'll, they'll betray others, and they won't keep their promises. Reckless also makes the ver- list in verse 4, reckless. They're going to be careless. They'll be impulsive. They're going to act without thinking about the consequences of their actions. 
People talk about being pro-choice. But for the great majority of pregnancies, the choice was getting into bed with someone you're not married to. Recklessness leads to even more sin. Swollen with conceit, verse 4, is the next one. Swollen with conceit. Again, this goes back to those who are arrogant and prideful, but maybe the added emphasis here is that it's just excessive. They're excessively self-important, like they're about to burst. They're swollen with conceit. Verse 4 continues, Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. This is referring to the worldly enjoyments and loving those instead of loving God. They prefer sinful gratifications over the satisfaction that only God can provide. Verse 5 adds, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Now that's interesting. What this means is that the people in this passage are not necessarily secular. There are people, these are people, who could be religious. They may even be professing Christians. And that lines up with what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 5.11, when he says, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. So implied in that verse is that there were some who were claiming to be Christians who were essentially antinomians, which are proponents of this false idea that Christians are freed from having to obey God's moral law. In fact, it's quite possible that this is what Timothy was up against. Not just an immoral world, but professing Christians who were antinomian. Antinomians have the appearance of godliness. They go to church, they may read their Bibles, etc. But they deny the transforming power of godliness. Those who have been saved by Jesus Christ are by his power continually being made into his likeness. The Holy Spirit works within each believer, transforms each believer from within. And Christians who deny that reality in order to embrace sinful lifestyles may have the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power. Consistent with Paul's counsel to the Corinthians, Paul tells Timothy at the end of verse 5, avoid such people. Now that's interesting because You might think that the best thing to do would be to approach such people. But there comes a point where someone is unrepentant and they just need to be avoided. Paul tells the church in Rome, for example, in Romans, to keep away from those who cause divisions and put obstacles in the way. John, in 2 John, tells the church not to welcome those who preach false gospels. Paul tells Titus to warn divisive people twice and that have nothing to do with them. So at some point, we do need to break fellowship with those who teach falsehoods and cause divisions. He goes on to say in verse 6 of chapter 3, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. So it sounds like the way that these false teachers were spreading their false doctrines was not by preaching it in the public square to be challenged, but by going to houses and persuading weak women. This is not to say that every woman was weak and susceptible to false doctrines, but spiritually weak women existed, and they were the targets 
of these false teachers. Such women were gullible. They were vulnerable to false teaching. These weak women in particular, uh, Paul says, were burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, meaning that they still had a lot of sins they were holding on to and they didn't want to repent of. That's the reality of every immature believer. And those who are having a hard time changing their old ways are susceptible to the teaching that you don't have to change your old ways. Such women are, verse 7 says, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Again, men and women can fall into that. But these false teachers were particularly targeting women like this. These women were always eager to hear some new learning. And as a result of that, they would never arrive at the actual truth. An equivalent to this today might be those who listen to every self-professed Bible teacher on YouTube without any kind of discernment. They just constantly learn new and intriguing heresies, never arriving at a knowledge of the truth. In verse 8, Paul turns his attention back to these false teachers. He says, Just as Jonas and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Now, the Old Testament doesn't name Jonas and Jambres as the magicians who opposed Moses and deceived Pharaoh, but those names were passed down in Hebrew tradition. Paul is telling Timothy, who would have known exactly who Paul was talking about, that these men, these false teachers, are just like Jonas and Jambres. Moses was speaking the truth to Pharaoh, speaking the truth to the Egyptians. And these magicians spoke falsehood, and they led Pharaoh and the Egyptians astray. These false teachers in Timothy's time were, verse 8, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. These aren't just believers who have some false doctrines. These are false believers who are completely corrupted in their minds and should not properly be called Christians. These are those whom John would refer to as those who were not of us, so they went out from us. In verse 9, Paul assures Timothy, but they will not get very far. The idea is that, yeah, they might have some success now, but that success won't last. Why is that? Middle of verse 9 says, For their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. So eventually, it would be seen that the teaching of these false Christians, these false prophets, were folly. Just as Janus and Jambres went down in history as being fools, so the folly of these false teachers would be plain to all. And the same is true today, right? Even though there are those today who believe that you can follow Christ and not have to change your life, and even though they may lead, lead people astray, the true church is aware that such teaching is folly. In verse 10, Paul contrasts himself with these false teachers. He writes this, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. He's not boasting about himself here. He's not bragging about himself. He's reminding Timothy of Paul's life that is consistent with Paul's teachings. Timothy not only knew Paul's teaching, but he also knew his conduct. He knew his aim in life, which was to preach Christ and him crucified, especially to the Gentiles. Timothy also followed Paul's faith, patience, 
love, and steadfastness, all of which are products of having truly been saved and truly been called by God to the ministry. Timothy also witnessed Paul's persecutions and sufferings that happened to him at Antioch, at Iconium, and Lystra. So in the cities of Antioch and Iconium, Paul had to flee because they wanted to stone him to death. And then when he was in Lystra, some of the Jews from Antioch and Iconium turned the Lystrans against Paul and they stoned him, leaving him for dead. He endured, verse 11 says, these persecutions, about which he says at the end of verse 11, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. God providentially let Paul escape Iconium, being let down in a basket, and he miraculously healed Paul from the stoning. It doesn't say that right in the text, but look, if people knew anything at that time, it was how to execute people by stoning. They, they thought Paul was dead, which means that he was in pretty bad shape. Yet Paul was able to dust himself off and go back into the city to encourage the new converts. God rescued him. The reason that Paul's persecutions were evidence of the truthfulness of his teachings we see in verse 12. Look at verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So if you are living the way that you're supposed to live and you're speaking the truth the way that you're supposed to speak, you're going to be hated by the world. You're going to be persecuted. Jesus says in Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when all people speak well of you, so their, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So if everybody likes you, you're in the same boat as the false prophets of old. On the other hand, Jesus says in John 15, 19, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So, if you're a Christian, the world is going to hate you. They shouldn't hate you because of your personality, but they will hate you because of your Christ-likeness. They hated him. And if they hated him, they're going to hate you. Christians are going to be persecuted, verse 13, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So you actually have two classes of opposition to the church. Evil people who are outwardly opposing the truth to engage in their sinful behavior and impostors who pretend to be Christians and yet they engage in sinful behavior. They live contrary to the gospel. Both of these people, Paul says, will go on from bad to worse in the last days. Remember, we're not talking about the future, right? We've been in the last days ever since Christ's ministry. Opposition to the gospel increases from those who reject or twist it. They don't just let up. They deceive and are deceived. And this is the problem that Timothy was faced with. And isn't it applicable today? It's as if Paul is writing directly to the church in Las Vegas. The worsening of evil people is seen in a lot of ways today, but the one that's staring us in the face right now, the one that keeps coming up when we don't bring it up, is the LGBTQIA movement. We see how this wickedness 
has grown rapidly. In the past, those with unbiblical sexual orientations and desires, they were just asking for acceptance and equal rights. But now it's grown to a requirement that all people accept and celebrate these sins. You can lose your job if you speak out against these things. There's actually a a Finnish politician who's facing potentially jail time because of a Bible verse that she posted four years before. In the future, you might even lose your children if you don't affirm your children's confusion about their gender identity. But then we also see the worsening of imposters. We see churches flying the pride flag. We've heard of the official church in Iceland celebrating Easter with their transgender version of Jesus. They have the appearance of godliness, but deny its power. And by the way, it's worth saying that we shouldn't think of America as some sort of country where we used to have a Christian utopia and now it's being ruined. We need to face the reality that many in our nation bought stolen people and subjected them to slavery. That our government broke treaties with Native Americans and relocated them by force. And that segregation persisted in the United States well into the 1900s. Sin has always been an issue in America. There have always been evil people. There have always been imposters going on from bad to worse. The true churches in all places and in all eras have seen it happen, and we're seeing it again as well. It was a problem in Timothy's time. It's been a problem for 2,000 years, and it's a problem for us now. So then, what is the timeless solution? What's the solution? Let's look at that now. Let's look at verses 14 through chapter 4, verse 5. Here's where it says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So evil people and imposters, they're going to deceive, they're going to be deceived, they're going to go from bad to worse. But as for you, Timothy, verse 14, Continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. Timothy learned from the scriptures. He was taught by the Apostle Paul and also, most likely, based on chapter 1, verse 5, by his mother and his grandmother. Timothy just needed to continue in the truth. That's it. Continue in the truth. He could do this while, verse 14 says, knowing from whom he learned it. In this case, Paul's probably talking about himself. 
Remember from earlier that he reminded Timothy that Timothy knew Paul's teaching, his conduct, his aim in life, etc. But it wasn't just that Paul taught him these things, but that Timothy knew the truth all of his life. Verse 15 says, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now at this point in history, when Paul says sacred writings, he's referring to the Old Testament. How is the Old Testament able to make one wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus? The Old Testament is packed with prophecies and foreshadowings of the Messiah. And when one rightly understood the Old Testament, they properly received Jesus as their Messiah, the Savior of their souls. That's why Paul reasoned with the Jews from the Old Testament when he was sharing the gospel with them. In verse 16, we arrive at one of our most treasured verses that we use to defend sola scriptura, right? Verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now we get to see the verse in its context, not just yanked out to support sola scriptura, right? Timothy, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed. You've known these scriptures. You've known how they've pointed you to Jesus Christ all your life. And all of that scripture, Timothy, verse 16, is breathed out by God. This is a word that's not found in any writing that's contemporary to Paul or before him, Theonoustos. God breathed. God breathed out all of the scriptures. And what that means is that he inspired the scriptures to the extent that he himself breathed it all out. 2 Peter 1, verses 20 through 21 says that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. No one wrote anything in Scripture just based on their own interpretation of things. The Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, carried them along as they spoke and as they wrote. And it's because of this divine inspiration that Hebrews 4.12 can say, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. There are a lot of good writings that are found in human history, but only the Bible can do those things because it's God's very word breathed out by him. All scripture breathed out by God is also, verse 16, profitable for teaching. Being breathed out by God himself, the Bible is useful in teaching others about him and about his will. The Bible is useful in teaching people about Jesus Christ, the Savior whom everybody needs to turn to for forgiveness. It's also profitable, verse 6 says, for reproof. To reprove is to rebuke someone for his actions. So the Bible is useful in reproving people because it's not simply one person rebuking another. It's a rebuke from God himself. Like, you're probably not interested in my criticizing you because of something that I personally don't like. But what you will listen to 
if you are led by the Spirit, is a rebuke from God's Word. Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, and also, verse 16, for correction. So the Bible not only rebukes you for your sin, but it shows you how you should live instead. The way of love, truth, hope, peace. The Bible is useful for correction. It's also useful, verse 16 says, for training in righteousness. The idea here is that is you're trained to live a righteous life. So not only is the Bible useful in helping someone turn from a sinful way to a righteous one, read, rebuke, and correct, but it's also useful in training somebody how to live righteously all around. Right? Imagine a, a boot camp where, where somebody is rebuked for dropping his rifle and corrected on how to properly hold it so that that doesn't happen again. That's a correction. But soldiers also receive other valuable training that's not necessarily associated with being rebuked or corrected. They're trained in teamwork. They're trained in discipline, engaging the enemy, etc. In the same way, not only is the Bible useful for correction, but also for training in righteousness. Verse 17 says, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This phrase here, man of God, is probably not talking about Christians in general, but ministers of God's word. Ministers of God's word. In the Old Testament, this term, man of God, was exclusively used to refer to prophets like Moses, Samuel, and Elijah. In the New Testament, this phrase is only used twice, and both of them refer to Timothy, who was a minister of the word. So the idea here is that the scriptures are all that a minister needs. That's it. The scripture makes a minister, verse 17 says, complete. And with the word of God, a man of God is, verse 17, equipped for every good work. So what this means is that the minister is equipped with everything that he needs, everything that he needs in order to do what God has called him to do. What all do pastors, teachers, and missionaries need in order to be successful? Well, the way that many churches think, churches that I have gone to and been part of, the way that I used to think, you might conclude that a church needs some of these, playing really good music, speaking in contemporary jargon and addressing contemporary issues, maybe having a cafe, having good signage and branding, creating a welcoming and inclusive environment. I actually like our music, I'm biased, but I do. We do often address contemporary issues because of Pastor Corey's design skills. We actually do have some good signage. We should be welcoming. And by God's grace, we have one of the most diverse churches I have ever seen. But we don't need any of those things to be successful. All that the pastors of this church need is the word of God. We are complete with it. We're equipped for every good work with it. So if we lose this building and all of our signage and fake plants and our people have to meet in homes and sing a cappella, we would still have all we need. A ministry could have an overhead of zero dollars and still have everything that it needs. Now, even though this verse is probably talking about ministers of the word, it still has application to all Christians. 
Ephesians 4.12 tells us that God gave ministers of the word to the church to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So what that means is that if the man of God uses scripture to teach, reprove, correct, and train you in righteousness, then you will be equipped for the work of ministry. So still, all you need to be able to do every good work that God has called you to do is contained in the scriptures. Psalm 19, seven through nine says of the scriptures, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So putting all that together, the Bible revives your soul. It makes you wise. It rejoices your heart. It enlightens your eyes. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. You want to know how to walk without stumbling? Illuminate your way with the word of God. So just as all that the minister needs to be equipped for every good work is the Bible, so all you need to be equipped for every good work is the Bible. So you see, the solution to evil people getting worse and impostors getting worse is the Bible. Well, how does that work? Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4 continue. It's, it's important, by the way, like we have these chapter breaks, which is very helpful, so we don't have to be like, turn to 2 Timothy roughly 75% of the way, right? Chapter, chapter and verse breaks are very helpful, but sometimes they can mess us up to think that this is somehow separate. Right? This is a continuation of what he's talking about. So in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. So Paul gives Timothy a solemn charge in light of all the problems of the world. He charges Timothy in the presence of the Father and the Son, Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead when he returns. And this is what he charges him to do. Preach the word. That's it? Paul, Paul, I don't think you understand the challenges we're going through in 2023. Paul don't, people don't accept the Bible as authoritative. So we need to take more creative approaches. We need philosophical approaches. We need psychiatry and psychotropics. We need politics. We need entertainment. We need to address people's felt needs. We need to move away from preaching the Bible and talk more about relevant topics. We need less exposition and we need more storytelling. No! Preach the word! But people don't want to hear the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Preach the word when people want to hear it. Preach the word when people don't want to hear it. It doesn't matter whether the conditions are favorable or not. Preach the word. This next phrase in verse 2 is key. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Notice the words reprove and teaching. Are you connecting the dots there? 
All Scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Therefore, preach the word. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, teach. This is the solution to the evil in the world. Preach the word. Now, we need to make sure we don't run over the phrase in verse 2 with complete patience. I don't think that this is talking about being patient with people, but the Bible does have plenty to say about that. Colossians 3.12, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Ephesians 4.2, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. In 1 Thessalonians 5.14, And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So, we certainly must be patient with each other. But in the context of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, the idea is more likely that we ought to be patient even when it seems like our preaching the word isn't having the impact that it needs to have. And that's the hard part. That's the kind of thing that tempts us to move away from the word. We approach someone with biblical truth and they reject it. So we think that we need something else. We need to be patient. We need to recognize that it is God who works through his word and we need to trust the process. You've, you've shared the gospel with somebody for years and they've rejected it every single time. Keep sharing the gospel. There is no other way that someone will come to faith in Christ. Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Keep preaching the word with all patience. You're discipling and you're counseling someone and it seems like nothing you're doing is working. Keep speaking the truth in love. All scripture is God-breathed. It's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. So press in with the word with all patience. You're living in a world that is continually becoming more and more hostile to Christianity. Preach the word. Correct your opponents with gentleness. Why? Take a look at chapter 2, verses 25 and 26. Chapter 2, verses 25 and 26. Middle of 25. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's good news. If we preach the word, people might laugh at our faces, but they might instead repent. There might be a revival. So preach the word. If we would have revival in our city and in our nation, the means that God will use will be the preaching of his word. Again, here's why we need to do this. Chapter 4, verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Just as we're seeing in our own time, in Timothy's time, people would soon not endure sound teaching. Instead, they would collect the teachers that they like, 
that suit their own passions. Here are a couple of reviews from Elevation Church. Pastor Furtick was very creative and theatrical and definitely good with the message and tying in self-experiences was excellent. Love the messages. It's always confirmation from God I'm on the right path. Now it's kind of popular right now to just dog on Stephen Furtick. So I, I said, I want to listen to an actual sermon of his so I'm not just parroting what people are saying, right? So I listened to an entire recent Stephen Furtick sermon and there was nothing in it that was false or heretical. There was just almost nothing in it. He certainly was creative. He was theatrical. He definitely tied in a lot of his own experiences. But here's what he didn't do at all. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. I am worried for the man that he is a teacher that suits the passions of those who will not endure sound teaching and have itching ears. Those people, verse 5, will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Mr. Furtick, we can't just let people do that. We need to preach the word in season and out of season. We need to be willing in love to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now what this passage does not guarantee is that everyone who hears the word will repent and believe. But preaching the word is the only hope that we have to counter the reality that evil people and imposters are going on from bad to worse. It's the only thing that will work. And look, it, it, it does work. No, it doesn't transform whole cultures all the time, but it transforms individual people. God uses his word through the power of his Holy Spirit to bring people out of darkness into light. God did that for you if you believe in Christ. He used his word. He uses his word to teach, reprove, correct, and train his people in righteousness. He convicts true believers using his word. God's word works because the one who works is God. It is this knowledge that makes verse 5 actually encouraging. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. The people, they're going to be guided by their passions. You, Timothy, be sober-minded. Be focused. Be alert. The people will be guided by their passions, endure suffering. Do you know what preaching the word might cost Timothy? His life, potentially. Paul himself was stoned and left for dead in Lystra. So while preaching the word works in evangelism and discipleship as God wills, it also angers people who aren't being saved. Preaching the word can cause suffering. Timothy, First Baptist Church of the Lakes, endure suffering. The end of verse 5 says, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, do what God has called you to do, even if that means that you suffer for it. Why? Preaching the word is the only thing that will work. 
We can do services for the community. We can maintain the garden of the school next door. We can drop off school supplies for the teachers, and we should do those things. People should see the love that we have because of Christ. But let's not kid ourselves. Once that school knows exactly what we preach, they're going to distance themselves from us. They can't afford that publicity. Imagine a public school partnering with a church that says Jesus is the only way to heaven. A church that says that following Jesus means obeying his sexual ethic. So our community service may open the door for the gospel, but the community service itself isn't going to change anything. Only preaching the word can. And if the Lord wills, Rather than resulting in more opposition and more hatred, the word may actually penetrate hearts and bring people to Jesus Christ or greater faithfulness to him. So why is this passage so helpful to me? Why is it so encouraging to me? You might think it's kind of a bummer of a message. It makes my job very clear. I don't need to complicate what I'm doing. I have everything that I need right here. It also gives me a reason to be patient because if somebody will repent, whether it's an unbeliever to trust in Christ or if it's a believer to repent of his sin, it will be because God grants him repentance. It's not up to me to shake the evil out of somebody. God will do his work as he wills through his word by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the same is true for you. We live in an increasingly scary world. Christianity has had so much favor in this country for so long that we may have become kind of soft. But if we would see any kind of change in the world that we live in, if it's the Lord's will to transform our culture for Christ, it will be through the preaching of his word. So preach the word in season and out of season. Always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work that God has called you to do. Fulfill your ministry. So the truth is, while I've grown weary of listening to the briefing, I should have the courage to listen to it every day because no problem in the world is too big for God, nor cannot be fixed through the preaching of his very word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mighty word spoken from you, our almighty God. Give us faith, O Lord, in what you've told us, that you will do what seems good to you, and you will use your word according to your perfect will. Help us to not shy away from your gospel. Help us to proclaim boldly of this Savior that saved us through faith in him. Help us, O Lord, to speak the truth and love to each other boldly, knowing that it is you who works, who wills into work in believers, O God. Lord, we need your help every day to believe this every day and to speak courageously for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.